before we read from Paul and his letter to the Philippians, I want to read to you a quote that I read this week. And this is the quote. Respect yourself. Respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, no longer grows you, or makes you happy. Now, I hope you hear some flaws in that statement. But sadly, most people in our culture today find nothing wrong with that sentiment. They find nothing wrong with it because our culture today is dominated by a spirit of selfishness. And, and we as a church even are affected by the culture we live in. And sometimes we don't even realize how selfish we are and how divisive we are until we look at what Christ did in his selfless act of sacrifice. And we look at his will for his church. When we see his revelation, we recognize how much selfishness dominates our lives. And we see what he has done and what he has called us to do as his people gathered here in his name on the earth to reflect his love, not our selfishness, not our own desires, but his desires, which become our desires by grace. That's why I think God gave us instructions like we have in the book of Philippians. In Philippians 2, we're going to read in a moment verses 1 through 4. And these verses actually show us there is a solution for selfishness and divisiveness in the church. And it points us to Christ, who is the one who resolved selfishness and divisiveness through his sacrifice. Actually, I'll read down to verse 8 so we can see that fully. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this thinking, have this mind among yourselves, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be asserted or grasped or held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now Paul obviously brings this up because selfishness was an issue in the church at Philippi. And selfishness has been an issue in every church since the church of Philippi. Matter of fact, selfishness has been robbing God's people of joy and dividing us since Genesis 3. Verses 1 through 10. Go with me there to see that. Selfishness is not a new problem that just arose in the church at Philippi. This is a problem that has roots all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis, it reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. There's a subtle, selfish phrase added to that text. She added part about touching it and dying. God never said that. She said that to make God look harsh and her look mistreated. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now in verse 6 we see selfishness spring forth. She desired this for herself. It delighted her eyes. She thought she would be wiser by taking this. And we also see selfishness in Adam who stood by silently so he would make his wife happy rather than guarding her from Satan's deception. And in verse 7 it says, After they ate, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Selfishness brought forth the fruit of division immediately. They were divided from the relationship with God by their sin. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Aren't you glad that God can find us even when we're hiding in our sins? He sought them out. In verse 10 it says, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There's the confession that selfishness leads to division. It divides God's people from God and a relationship with God and others. Because we have two things fighting at 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 war in us all the time. We have selfish ambition and we have conceit. So in Philippians 2, 1-4, to here, here the Lord is revealing to us through the Apostle Paul that the body of Christ is united by three things. It's united by Christ's provisions that we'll see in verse 1. The body of Christ is also united by Christ's reflection. We see that in verse 2. And, and what we'll focus on is that the body of Christ is also united by Christ's direction, His revelation, in verses 3 and 4. Now, just let me give you a quick review, but also some cross-references to tie this together for those who weren't here the last couple of Sundays. In Philippians 2.1, Paul is going to reveal to us that the body of Christ is united by Christ's provisions for his body. Look, look at the verse again. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and he's going to go on to say all these things follow Christ. They fill in from Christ. They come to us from Christ. There's comfort from Christ. There's participation in the Spirit that comes from Christ's work. There's affection and sympathy that's the result of Christ at work in the church. And basically that phrase in verse 1 could be translated, since there is encouragement. He's going to give us a command. 
in verse 2, to complete his joy by reflecting Christ. In verse 1, though, Christ provides many things for his church. Let me go through a few cross-references to show you this. First of all, the first thing we see is that Jesus provides encouragement to sinners. He encourages us through his life, his sacrifice, according to Romans. Romans 5, 6. Romans 5, 6. I'm not going to comment on these. I just want you to hear these so you can understand that Paul is saying we have provisions for the body. And they come through encouragement in Christ. Here's the encouragement we have in Christ's life in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love, shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We, we have not just had our sins removed by his death, but through his life we have encouragement that we have been reconciled to God. That's what Philippians 2.1 is pointing out in the very first part of that phrase. Since there is encouragement in Christ, in his life, in his death, in his reconciling work, we are to go on and complete Paul's joy by reflecting Christ in the body. Also, in Philippians 2.1, the next phrase is, there's comfort, comfort from love. That's provided to us from Christ. Christ's provision is that he has given us his love. He's given his love to the unlovely, according to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.26. This is a great provision from Christ himself. He has comforted us, us, Sinners, the unlovely. He has comforted us with His love and His calling upon our life. That comforts us. That in, encourages us in Christ. According to what it says here, 1 Corinthians 1.26 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose. He chose us. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one boasts, the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what Christ provides for us in Philippians 2. One, he provides comfort from his love given to the unlovely so that he would receive glory. That should comfort you. God chose you. 
God picked you out, sent his son to be your righteous sacrifice. Jesus also provides in Philippians 2, 1, unity. It says in, in 2, 1, it says that we have participation in the Spirit. He says, if we have this in the Spirit, we should complete Paul's joy by reflecting it in the body. So he, he says, Jesus provides his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to unite those who were outcasts, those who were separated from God because of our sin. We see that again in, in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 13. This should encourage us in Christ. We are united, we are participating, we have fellowship in the Spirit because of Christ, according to Philippians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We have a provision of unity and fellowship through Christ's sacrifice. Through what he did for us, we have access to the Father, through the Spirit, by His grace and what Christ accomplished. And that is supposed to unite us as a body and reflect Christ's glory in our service, in our love for one another in the church. Paul also tells us in Philippians 2.1 that with the body of Christ is united by what Christ provides to us through the body of Christ, through affection and sympathy through the church. We see that in Galatians 6, verse 1. There is affection and sympathy given to us because we are in Christ, placed into his body, united by his love, encouraged by his life, and cared for by his church. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ has given us the church to show us affection and sympathy and care for us physically, care for us spiritually. Those are the provisions of Christ that are given to us that Paul says will produce unity when you contemplate these, when you meditate upon these things. When you know these things are to be true, then you will live in light of these truths with joy in your service in the church. Paul reveals that our unity in the church will grow out of what we know about what Christ has provided for us. Paul wants the revelation of Christ's provisions to cultivate what he says in that text in verse 1. He wants it to cultivate encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and affection. He wants the Philippians to know this. In Christ you have all this. Cultivate this and let this fill you up like it's filling me up when I see it reflected in the body. He says, make my joy complete. You see that in verse 2. Complete my joy. Complete my joy. Complete my joy by, by being joyful in what Christ has provided for you. 
That's the second thing we see. We see the, the joy of Christ that Paul's talking about here revealed in verse 2. We see it revealed in the church's unity as they reflect Christ's love bodily, as they reflect Christ in the community of the saints in a way that's practical, in a way that's visible, a way that's felt, a way that's experienced. He says, complete my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, all those point back to Christ. He's saying, complete my joy by growing in what Christ enjoys. By growing in the truth about Christ as it sanctifies you and conforms you into His image and you begin to reflect His mind, His love, His unity, His passions in your body. Paul's saying there in verse 2, that his joy would be full, his joy would be filled to the brim and overflowing, complete, if he saw the reflection of Jesus in the church. That's what makes Paul tick. He serves the church to see Christ conform us into his image, into Christ's image. He wants to see the reflection of Christ's humility in the church. He wants to see the reflection of Christ's selfless love in the church. He wants to see the reflection of Christ's constant fellowship in the church. He wants to see Christ's one desire magnified in the church, which is to bring Christ's glory on the earth. He wants it to be seen practically and locally. He's, he's writing to a, a local church at Philippi, yet it does transcend time, and, and it's also written to us, I understand that. But here he's, he's telling them, locally in this gathered body, you need to be displaying Christ in a way that people will see you have the same mind as Christ. You have the same love as Christ. You have the same accord, unity, one heart, one soul. That's what that means as Christ. You have the same mind, the same desire. Basically what he's saying is, I, I want you to be one-souled. The church is to be one-souled, united by the heartbeat of Christ's love. That's what he's saying. You should, you should move as a body because the, the heartbeat of Christ is pumping blood to your members, making you move at His impulse. The impulse of His love should be seen in your activity, in your lives together in the community of the saints, in the body. So that's, that's your review of the first two verses. Now, in Philippians 2, 3-4, Paul's going to reveal to us that the church is united by Christ's direction of his body the direction that comes from christ will unite the church and so here are the directions or instructions that will not only reflect christ in our lives it will turn us to christ-like activities from the heart in verse three he says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. First thing we see in Christ's direction here is that unity in Christ's body requires mutual protection. He is directing us to this. He's directing us by saying unity in the body requires mutual humility. 
mutual protection. He's warning, he's warning the Philippians and he's warning us that our unity will face disruption if we don't follow God's directions. If we follow our impulse of our own hearts, our own inclinations, we will bring division, selfish ambition into the body of Christ. And it will shame the name of Christ when sin and selfishness flourishes in the body. It brings in disease and destruction and separation. And God wants us to be united in His love and what Christ has accomplished. Our, our unity and love in the church grows, flourishes, thrives by following Jesus' directions and His word. We see that in Romans 12. Go there with me. Following Jesus' words will actually transform our minds and it transforms the body. What I mean is it transforms the body of Christ. When our minds are renewed, when our minds are transformed, it affects the way the body performs. And so unity and love will be expressed and will flourish and grow in the body of Christ if we follow Jesus' directions in His Word. Not our inclinations, not our feelings, not our sentiments, but God's direction. Because frankly, some of our sentiments toward one another isn't always lovely. We're not always lovely. I mean, frankly, we're, we're a pain a lot of times, aren't we? I mean, you ask your spouse. You have selfishness. You have divisiveness. You have conceit. We all do. So we need to be washed. We need to be renewed. We need to be protected. We need to be directed by God's Word. We see that explained to us in Romans 12.1. I'm going to read down to verse 18 so you can see how the mind transforms the body. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, testing your feelings, your thoughts, your intentions up against God's direction, God's word, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You, you submit your minds and your thoughts and your ideologies and your feelings to God's direction. Then you can discern how you should respond to every situation. Verse 3 says, For by grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That sounds a lot like Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Don't think too highly of yourselves or your views. Submit your views to God through His Word. He says in verse 3, But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. 
Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who reap. Weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now this text shows us that the Word transforms the body. The directions of Christ the renewing of our minds, the transformation of our thoughts according to God's Word will affect the way the body interacts, the way we love, the way we patiently endure trials with one another, how we weep with one another, how we have compassion for one another, how we submit ourselves to serve one another with cheerfulness. It teaches us that the Word will transform the body. So we need Jesus' directions. In Philippians 2, 3, Paul is preparing the Philippians and warning the Philippians that if they don't follow the directions of Christ, their unity will be disrupted. There were already people attacking the unity of the church, and I believe it came through the false teachers who would affect and infect the church in some degree in chapter 4, and he's, he's responding to them, but you see the effects of it, or in chapter 3 rather, and in chapter 4 you see the effects of it in the, the lives of the two women who are bickering. So he's warning them. If, if you don't listen to the direction of Christ, the church will be divided. Selfishness will reign in the hearts of all flesh. And Christ will be dishonored. Christ will be dishonored by two deceptive enemies that Paul mentions in Philippians 2.3. These two enemies that Paul mentions are within us. There is still indwelling sin in our flesh and these two enemies hide there underneath the flesh just out of sight until the right time and then they raise their ugly heads and cause division in the church. And what Paul does is really unique here. He, he does something to help them defeat selfish ambition and conceit. He, he doesn't address directly selfish ambition and conceit. He directs them to Christ who did defeat selfish ambition and conceit. And when you contemplate and ponder what he has done, you will not do anything from selfishness or from a conceited heart. That's the way he argues here. He knows that Christ's work will expose and crush these two enemies. The enemies are there in Philippians 2, 3a. It says, do nothing from rivalry. Maybe, maybe that's what your text says. It's better translated selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Our unity in the church needs direction to protect us from these two enemies. Selfish ambition, the way it was used here in this, in this phrase in the Greek in Paul's day was basically a phrase that would be used of someone who was trying to achieve political uh, status, a high and noble office. And what they would do is they would don the attitude of one who has selfish ambition, basically crushing anyone in their way to get to the top. 
That was the attitude. It's the attitude of one who works at being honored for his own glory. Works at being honored to gain a noble position. It's one who doesn't care about who he has to step on to get to the top. And listen, it doesn't look that obvious sometimes in the church, but it's there. There are people jockeying for positions, for praise, for adoration, because it's selfish ambition underneath their flesh creeping out because maybe they haven't been directed by Christ and His Word, haven't been sanctified by the truth. We know that that was going on probably in the men that they were harassing Paul at Rome who were giving him a hard time that we looked at earlier on in Philippians 1. We also know that this is the attitude, selfish ambition is definitely the attitude of all false teachers. It's the attitude of Satan himself. It's the attitude of the world that's dominating their hearts. And again, it's an attitude that we are culturally immersed in, and if we're not careful, it will be expressed even in the church. So we have to uproot it. We have to cut out this cancer by not doing anything that would actually exalt ourselves, but doing everything to exalt Christ in our service in the church. We're also to watch out for the enemy of conceit. The old translation of the word conceit is vainglory. It's an attitude that makes us feel, makes us feel more superior than other people. It makes us feel as if that we have grown to such a, a degree and a, and a place in the church that we are beyond stooping to serve others. They got themselves into that mess. They can get themselves out of that mess. I've dealt with them enough. That's conceit. It's as if we've forgotten that we need to be picked up out of our mess by Christ all the time and by others who see our sin so obviously on the outside of us. Paul's warning against these attitudes. He's warning against selfish pride. And he warns them by turning them to Christ. Turning them to the cure for selfishness by pointing them to Christ's humility. We see that in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. He says, you want, you want to do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit? Here's what you do. You have this mind. You have the same mind. You, you think like Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves. Now again, he's talking about the community of the saints. He's not talking about you individually, though it applies to you individually. He's talking about as you gather corporately in the body, you need to individually have this attitude when you gather corporately so that you would reflect Jesus in your ministry. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have, we have encouragement, we have comfort, we have participation, we have affection. We have the mind of Christ. Here's the mind. Verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, asserted, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The only human who ever walked the earth who should never have died was Jesus. All of us should anticipate death because of our sin. The sinless one, though, humbles himself to receive the punishment that we deserved to die upon a cross in our place, not counting his equality with God 
something that needed to be asserted at the time, but he held it back so that he could actually perform this great and loving act for us to unite us so that we would reflect him on the earth. See, we're, we're saved for Jesus. Put in the church for Jesus. That's the cure against selfishness. We belong to Christ. We're His body, united in His love, in His blood, in His cross, made one. And our hearts should be as one. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The example that we see that he gives from Christ in 5-8 through should mortify pride. It should motivate joyful obedience in the church as we humbly sub- submit to Christ and humbly serve our brothers. We, we have to do this in the church because just like the church at Philippi, we still face these two enemies. And the best way for us to fight these enemies is to look to Christ's humility. Look at what Christ has done to unite us together. The King of glory took off His robes, His glorious and holy robes, and He set them aside to become a slave who was without sin yet died in our place to bring us unity with God, to reconcile us and unite us in a body. You you recognize that everyone you see here that's truly born again, you will be with for eternity. Therefore, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit But serve your brothers, serve your sisters. Christ redeemed us from the lie in Genesis 3. He redeems us from Satan's lie that self-exaltation would satisfy and bring us joy. He, He redeems us from this. He buys us out of that lie. He brings us to the truth that selfish ambition and vain glory will only rob us of our true joy. And our true joy is found in serving the Lord Jesus and his people. See, in in serving Christ, here's what happens. In serving Jesus in the church, we feel abundant life. We feel saved. When we are serving Christ, abundant life is flowing through us because it's Christ's life that's being reflected in our lives together in the church. We We were saved to reveal this love in the body. We were saved to experience abundant life in the context of the local church as we express the love of Christ visibly, physically, and compassionately. Christ saves us for this. That brings us joy. There's nothing that that pleases me more, that makes me happier, than when, when my wife has a need, and I see the need. She hasn't told me about the need, but I see the need, and I am able to do something to help her, to serve her, and then she is satisfied by that. She is joyful over that. She is thankful over that. I derive great joy from that. And that's what it's like in serving the church. When I give myself away sacrificially, when you give yourself away sacrificially, you will find true joy and satisfaction in the service of Christ and His people. This isn't just a social gathering. We are the people of God, bought by the blood of Christ, united in love to seek His glory, to reveal His glory, and to share His glory. People seeking honor on their own, seeking power for themselves, seeking praise for themselves. They find find that they are drinking from a broken cistern, a cistern full of stale water that is disappearing all the time. Self-exaltation will never satisfy our souls. Our souls were created for exalting Christ. 
when we drink of the living water of Christ, the living water of His humility and His grace and His love, we find true joy. And that true joy is manifest and we are satisfied by it when we are serving His body. That's when we find it is most satisfying to us. When you're serving the local church and other Christians, you should have this great passion in your heart and joy in your service. Because ultimately, you're serving Jesus. Wives, when you submit to your husbands, you're submitting to the one who gave you the protector to guard you. You should find joy in your submission. Husbands, as you labor to love your wives and sacrifice for her, you should find joy in that submission and that sacrifice because it's edifying her and it's exalting Christ's position as the protector. For us, as Christians, there should be no greater joy than serving the body of Christ locally, as well as worldwide even in the most mundane things you know you know most of our life is lived in the mundane right i mean we don't have you know uh, miracles happening every day we don't have unique revivals happening every week most of our christian service is done in the mundane things we do for one another in love and god says that for those who do the mundane those who do the mundane in the body of Christ for the glory of Jesus and for the love for the saints, there, there will be pleasures and joy beyond measure reserved for you in glory. There will be treasures reserved for you in glory because when you're caught up in serving Christ and serving others in the church, you are reflecting the glory of Jesus here on earth. And Jesus is pleased when he sees his image in our lives even when it's expressed through the smallest of acts, the smallest acts of kindness and consideration. There's a promise to those who express those acts. There's a promise of eternal life and joy forever in God's love, according to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him he will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, uh, this is good, Come you who are blessed by the Father. That's, that's why they come. That's why they're there. They are there because God has blessed them, and He's done so before the foundation of the world, according to this text. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The inheritance that we receive is based on God's blessing that was reserved for us before the foundation of the world, but it's evidenced in the saint's service, in the mundane things in life, in the small things, feeding and clothing and caring and showing compassion and consideration of others as more important than ourselves. 
You know, some of these things that are mentioned here would have been risky endeavors, feeding a prisoner, caring for a prisoner. That would imply that you're connected to that prisoner. could also imply that you deserve to be in prison with them. But the saints will do whatever it takes to glorify Jesus and care for his people. That's, that's an illustration of putting away selfish ambition and conceit and turning to others in love that reflects Christ and that brings unity in the church. That brings us satisfaction. And it's through the small things that we find great satisfaction, isn't it? I mean, we, we should be thrilled when a saint comes to us and says, I see a need in the church. I see a need in this person's life. We should be thrilled because that is the love of Jesus manifesting itself through the life of a believer. That's, that's, that's a miracle of God's grace. And Jesus says, those who do that give evidence that they are blessed by the Father and were blessed from before the foundation of the world. Now go with me back to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 3, part B. Here we see the next point, B, on your outline. Here we see that unity in Christ's body requires mutual submission. Christ is going to direct all of us, when he's, when he's addressing them here through Paul to the Philippians, he's actually addressing all of us. He's addressing all of us to put away selfish ambition and put on mutual submission. We're directed there in verse 3 by Christ to humble ourselves for the sake of others. You see that in verse 3b. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, how do you do that? Well, he says in humility we are to do this. Okay, so he doesn't say humbly count others. No, he says in the state of humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, how do, you, how do you get into a state of humility? Well, by having the same mind, knowing that you're redeemed by the same love, knowing that you're united by the same spirit, knowing that you are given the same passions of Christ. That, that should humble you because you recognize you are a sinner, you are an outcast, you are a reject, and you've now been reconciled to God. Therefore, you should humble yourselves or be in humility for the sake of others. And I think we, we do this, we, we cultivate humility in the body of Christ by, by focusing on the truth about our past and also about our present need. Recognizing our past condition and our present need of sanctification. I think that brings about humility that allows us to count others more significant than ourselves. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Is he's basically saying this in, in 2 or 3b there. He's saying that the truth about our sinful past and our present need of practical holiness will uproot the attitude of selfish ambition and cultivate mutual submission. I think if we have a right view of our sin, a right view of God's righteousness, a right view of His church that He purchased with His blood and loves with an everlasting love, then we will humble ourselves. We will be in humility and we will put away selfish ambition and desire to raise up others and care for them compassionately. The truth about our sinfulness should affect us 
the way it affected the tax collector and the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. Go there with me. In Luke 18:9, the tax collector came before God in humility. And when we contemplate what he contemplated, this is the way we will come to the community of the saints in humility. We will, we will cultivate humility when we think about who we are in Christ and how we got here and what God's plan is for us and what still needs to happen in our lives. Luke 18, 9 says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So you want to you put down selfishness? Jesus says, I'm going to show you how to do it. Have the right attitude about your past experiences and your present need of sanctification. Two men, verse 10 says, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day. I give tithes of all that I get. That's selfish ambition and vain glory. Jesus has no place for this. This man will not leave the temple just, but unjust in his sin and self-righteousness. But the man who has a right understanding of his standing before God will leave justified by God's grace. Verse 13 says, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He has an accurate assessment of his condition. And this pleases God. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, I don't know of any way to actually cause you and I to, to humble ourselves by, by a three-step method, by a 12-step method. I, I know of only one thing that will humble our hearts before God and in the church. That's focusing our eyes on Christ's accomplishments and what he's done to transform us and continue to sanctify us. When you contemplate and consider your sinful works and God's amazing grace, you will cultivate humility in the body of Christ. How can we dare think that we're better than someone else when we know we still fight indwelling sin? How can I bring judgment down on you now, how can, I, how can I do that if I know that I still struggle in my flesh with sin? Instead, I am to consider you as more significant than myself. And by doing that, I am humbling myself before God like the tax collector, saying, God, I am a sinner saved by your grace through the blood of your Son to serve your church. Use me in spite of my sins. Sanctify me through the service of the church. Use me for your glory. Please, God, I'm just an instrument in your hands. I have nothing to bring but my sin, yet you have saved me by your grace and set me in this place so I can actually glorify Jesus. That, that, that cultivates humility and it create, creates this reflection of Christ's love in the church that is undeniable to the world. It's evangelistic and edifying at the same time. We were never better than anyone else when God picked us and we're not better than anyone else now because God picked us. 
We're in by grace. We're kept by grace. We're trophies of grace. We will always be trophies of grace, even in eternity. So Paul says in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others as more significant than yourselves. I'm going to ask you just to do some self-examination this morning. I'm going to end on this point and continue on in verse 3 next week or next time we meet. Um, but I want you to stop for just a moment and be real honest. This isn't just, this just you know, isn't a formality that I'm going to go through here with you. I, I want you to truly, honestly examine your hearts this morning. Let's be honest with God and with ourselves. We all struggle with selfish ambition at times, and we need God's direction and correction. That's what this text is to do this morning. <laughs> I felt like when I got up here this morning, I'm preaching to the choir. You're all here. You're all wanting to serve one another. Yet, obviously, God brought you here to hear this text for a particular reason, by his grace. I think it's to call us all to repentance, because we all struggle with this issue of selfish ambition. Sometimes we, we see that there are needs in the church, and sometimes we see there are problems in people in the church, yet we do nothing about it but complain. We criticize. And maybe that's, maybe that's evidence of our own conceit, a high view of ourselves. I don't know, but maybe it's also that we don't want to act on anyone else's behalf because it would require sacrifice. And it wouldn't be noticed necessarily. And I want to be noticed. I want to be praised. I want to feel like I'm doing something productive and other people see it. That's selfish ambition. Maybe that's the issue that we all struggle with underneath the flesh. We complain about the problems. We point out the problems to other people. But we do nothing about it because it's going to be costly for us personally. Maybe, maybe it's going to be costly and we know that if, the, if it's not noticed and not appreciated, we won't get any points. We won't be set up in a position to serve publicly. And so we abstain from it. We don't feel like our labors that are unseen are, are worth our efforts because we're going to have to sacrifice time and money and energy to care for one another. And I won't be praised for this. You've all felt this way. We all have. I'm guilty of this. We want to be praised. We want, we want our work to be appreciated. We want people to say, good job. Thank you. Instead of focusing so narrowly upon ourselves, we should be repenting and mutually submitting our skills and our talents and our gifts for the good of the church, even if no one sees it. The true test of humility is when you serve the church and other people get the credit and you're happy about it. That's humility. That's Christ. Christ subdued his glory, held his glory in while he served as a slave, receiving no praise, no adoration from man, dying an ignoble death upon a cross in our place so that we could be united in his glory and his grace forever. And he's calling us to humbly submit for his glory and the good of his church now corporately, together. When we follow his directions and his word, it's, it's going to reveal to us, I think, as we study this, as we think about this, as we study what Christ has done, it will cultivate humility and unity in our church. I think it'll do that because it'll transform 
our thinking, and that transforms our actions. When we, when we feed on the truth about what Christ has accomplished, unity will flourish in the church, and selfishness will be put to death. I mean, don't you want to get excited about someone else growing in sanctification, even if you don't get the credit for discipling them? We want Christ to receive all the glory. But because of our selfish ambition and our conceit, we, we get blurry-eyed when it comes to serving. And again, it takes constantly focusing upon Christ and what He has accomplished, what He's done for us, to humble us, so that when we, when we pour our lives and our time and our money and our effort into people, and no one notices, but they're flourishing in grace and knowledge and truth, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. Because Jesus' child is reflecting His love, His glory, and His grace. Now, for us to humble ourselves and willfully serve one another, even if no one notices, for us to do that, let me just be honest with you, it must be done by God. It's a miracle. But he says, in Christ, have this mind in Christ. Have the mind of Christ. It's possible because we are encouraged in Christ that we have been given a new mind that's renewed by His directions. And we can do it because of His Word, because of His grace. But we can also do it because He calls upon us to do it as a command here. And I think that as we do it as a command, we need to do it as a tax collector, submitting in humility to God for our direction and for our strength to accomplish it, because we want Christ's love to flow through us. We must ask Him to sanctify us. So if you want to humble yourselves and count others as more significant than yourself, you need to be asking God to do that. You need to be submitting yourself to his instructions, his direction. So just, just think about this today. Are you, are you asking God specifically, are you asking God specifically to, to feed you truth that will humble your heart so you can serve others in this church. We have a lot of needs in the church. We have needs in the ministry of this church. Though small, we have a lot of needs. We need teachers. We need instructors. We need laborers. We need people who will serve in caring for one another and providing for the, the good of others. But if you're serious about wanting to do that for the glory of Christ, you, you need to be submitting this to Christ in prayer. We need to be asking Him to make us servants that reflect His humility and His grace by counting others as more significant than ourselves, by mutually submitting to one another in the body. So this morning, let me just ask you to do that. I want you to pray with me, and I do hope that God in His grace is cultivating repentance in all of our hearts so that we would turn from selfish ambition and conceit and turn to mutual submission for His glory, not for ours, for the good of one another. And ask Him to do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come before You as reconciled sinners, plagued with selfishness, plagued with conceit, needing Your sanctifying work. Jesus, we, we want Your greatness and glory and worth to be reflected in our works. Our only true ambition should be to, to magnify what you have done to save us, secure us, unite us, sanctify us in a local church. Please please forgive me 
for my selfishness, my selfish ambition, my vainglory, my desire for praise. Submit me, God, to your direction. Put me under your discipline. Teach me. Train me. Show me so that, so that even Nate and I both can cut a path for the church to follow in as we seek to submit to one another in service here at Sovereign Grace. I pray that you would help Nate and I to recognize vainglory and selfish ambition in one another so we could repent and confront one another when that happens so that we could truly, effectually serve Jesus in the church by loving the people and counting them as more significant than ourselves, even if no one sees our labors. There's so much selfishness in our world today, God. It's so hard for us to see even our own selfishness, and that's why we need your sanctifying direction. We need your word. We need this fellowship. We need mutual edification. We need one another outside of the Sunday service. We, we need to be connected. We need to be holding one another accountable. Help us to do that this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.